Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company, Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. School of Humans. In 1966, an outbreak of respiratory syncytial virus spread through Washington, D.C. RSV is a highly contagious virus that usually pops up in the colder months. It can block the airways of infants and cause pneumonia in older adults. Tens of millions of people get sick from it every year, and thousands die. To stop those deaths, a team at the National Institutes of Health created some RSV vaccines and tested them in babies, mostly babies from poor black families. The trial went badly, really badly. Dozens of infants got a new RSV vaccine, and not only did the vaccine not protect them from the virus, it actually seemed to expose them to graver sickness. So the vaccinated babies who caught RSV fared worse than those who got no vaccine at all. 18 of those kids ended up in the hospital, and two of them died. As far as vaccine trials go, it was a total disaster. It's a cruel irony of vaccine development that those two kids' deaths 50 years ago indirectly led to one of the greatest successes in the history of modern drugs, the COVID-19 vaccines. The single biggest breakthrough in coronavirus vaccine research was inspired by scientists who wanted to protect kids from RSV. And because of that work, They figured out how to make a vaccine for coronavirus two years before the first case of COVID-19. In this episode, we're going to get a little technical on you, but it's necessary in order to get to the heart of how these vaccines work. From iHeartRadio and School of Humans, I'm Sean Revive, and this is Longshot. Yeah, people want, you know, they want to see smoking vessels of, like, purple. I'm like, okay, but, you know, we're biologists, we're not chemists. That's Jason McClellan. He works at the University of Texas in Austin. And he's telling us that his office isn't as exciting as visitors might think. I mean, when people come to visit, we add food coloring and things because they want to see yellow. But, like, everything we work with is water. It's, like, biological. I'm in Austin, Texas, at the University of Texas. I'm in one of the departments called the Molecular Biosciences Department. I'm a structural biologist. 
Structural biologists zoom way in on large molecules, or groups of molecules, and figure out how their parts are put together and why they work the way they do. They spend a lot of time looking at proteins, which play a ton of roles in the body of humans and other living things. Proteins help you grow, digest food, fight disease, stay energized. They also help bind cells together and transport nutrients. Some hormones, like insulin, are proteins. Antibodies are proteins. Enzymes are proteins. Hemoglobin, which is the dominant component of our blood, is a protein. Structural biologists like Jason want to know exactly what proteins look like. Without the structures, we don't really know what these proteins look like. We draw them as ovals or squares, but once we determine their structures, we're able to like 3D print the actual molecule, essentially, and know where every amino acid is located on the protein, how the proteins fold. The, the structure leads to function, so by understanding the structure, we know something about how the protein works. And if you know how proteins work and how they look, you can figure out ways to alter them change amino acids, maybe make the protein more stable, or chop off some parts we don't want to try to make them the best possible vaccine antigens. Understanding what specific proteins do is the key to the COVID vaccines. But it's not like Jason went to college and majored in proteins. Ooh, it was a, uh, a kind of winding path, I guess. I went to college, uh, Wayne State University in, De- in Detroit. Michigan, I wanted to do pre-med and be a doctor. Mostly I was you know, just trying to think of things I could do to, to help people. But early on, I, I realized I really liked chemistry and was, was quite good at chemistry. Uh, so I went to graduate school. I learned a technique called X-ray crystallography, and that's one of the methods for determining um, structures of proteins. But ultimately, I wanted to do a bit more than just determine the structures. I wanted to try to have some applied research to create things that could end up going into humans and improve human health. Around 2008, Jason heard about a guy at the NIH doing a lot of cool stuff with HIV, looking closely at the virus's structure and trying to design a vaccine. He joined the lab there. And while at the NIH, he ended up working with a doctor and virologist named Barney Graham, a world expert on RSV. The RSV vaccine that failed back in the 60s was made by weakening a strain of the virus by passing it through animal tissue or human cells. That's the way the great vaccine creators of the past, like Maurice Hilleman, made their vaccines. Jason and Dr. Graham wanted to create a vaccine in a totally different way. They wanted to manipulate a specific protein of the RSV virus, the one the virus uses to infect human cells. It's called the F protein, F as in fudge, and it comes in two forms or as scientists say, two confirmations, pre-fusion and post-fusion. Here's Jason to explain more. Proteins exist in some initial confirmation on the surface of the virus. It's what we call the pre-fusion confirmation. Then there's an event that causes the protein to begin refolding and rearranging, much like a transformer going from a car to a robot. Parts of it, parts of the protein just start moving and refolding And it ends up forming an intermediate conformation where it shoots part of the protein into our host cell membrane. That's pretty confusing, so let's try and visualize it. There's a virus cell and a human cell. We'll picture them as tennis balls. The virus tennis ball has this protein on its surface, sort of shaped like a cone or a stubby mushroom stalk. That's its F protein. So the virus tennis ball looks for human tennis balls in the body. And when it finds one, 
here's what happens. The mushroom stalk stretches and elongates and attaches itself to the human tennis ball. So it's like a bridge between the two tennis balls, human and virus. So it's stuck between the host cell membrane and the viral membrane? The membrane of a cell is like its skin. It separates the inside of the cell from whatever is on the outside. And then it bends back around like a hairpin to bring the two membranes together. And then it adopts this final state called the post-fusion state. So after the stalk on the virus tennis ball has elongated and attached itself to the human tennis ball, it folds itself in half in order to bring the two tennis balls together. That's the fusion. And so when the F protein has already elongated and then folded, it's in its post-fusion form. By then, it's too late. You want to teach your body to fight the pre-fusion form before the mushroom stalk has folded and attached to the human cell. And so if you think of your immune system as a security guard, you want to train your immune system to recognize the form that might infect you, like the dangerous form, and that's the pre-fusion form. If you train it to recognize the post-fusion form, the pre-fusion form can still sneak by you. So in order to train the immune system to recognize the pre-fusion form of RSVF proteins, Jason needed to keep the proteins in their pre-fusion unfolded form. But that isn't easy. First of all, RSVF proteins really want to go into their post-fusion form. Second, proteins are tiny. It's not like they could go in with tweezers and hold the F protein in place. The F protein has a molecular mass of 57.4 kilodaltons, which means its weight in grams has 21 zeros after the decimal point. It's really difficult to see what they look like, much less alter their behavior. And nobody could figure out how do we how do we create a form of the prefusion molecule that will stay in the prefusion shape and allow us to purify it and inject it into people. But in 2013, they had a breakthrough. They were finally able to determine the exact structure of the prefusion form of the RSVF protein. Plus, they figured out how to keep it in that form, how to keep it from elongating. And we could start making changes like adding in little molecular staples to, to link two regions together so that way the one part couldn't pull away from the other. And that worked. We were eventually able to make four different changes to the protein that really locked it in the prefusion confirmation and allowed its use as a vaccine antigen. Basically, they discovered how to sort of staple the mushroom stalk in place. And when Barney immunized mice and compared post-fusion versus pre-fusion, the mice receiving the prefusion form of the F protein elicited neutralizing antibodies about 10 times higher than, the, than those that received the postfusion. This is huge. This was the first time structural biology had helped discover a new way to stop a virus. Science Magazine called it one of the top 10 breakthroughs of 2013, and their success in stabilizing the F protein made them want to try the same process with other similar viruses. What else could we take this new approach, the structure-based approach, and, and apply to what, what other pathogens are important? And that was around the time that the MERS coronavirus had emerged in, the, in Saudi Arabia and the Middle East. That's Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, which is caused by a coronavirus called MERS-CoV. The disease was first reported in Saudi Arabia in 2012. It causes bad respiratory illness. fever, cough, shortness of breath, and it can eventually kill you with pneumonia and kidney failure. Even today, there are still cases that pop up on occasion. 35% of people infected with it were dying. It's a real lethal 
virus. And we thought that this would be a good target to try to take everything we had just learned about RSV and apply it to not just MERS, but coronaviruses in general. Uh, because we knew SARS coronavirus had emerged in China in, in 2002, and it caused a, an epidemic. Remember, Eddie Holmes spoke about the first SARS in episode what one. I realize is that raccoon dogs, they were implicated in the first SARS outbreak of 2002, 2003, because they were positive raccoons. First came SARS-1, then came MERS. Here's Jason again. And then 10 years later, we saw MERS emerge. We felt like maybe we were on a 10-year cycle or, or something where we'd, we'd keep having coronaviruses emerge into the human population. And so we wanted to figure out how can we do structure-based vaccine design for coronaviruses to make the best possible vaccine antigens. Jason and Barney Graham wanted to use their ability to zoom in on viruses and their ability to play around with them to make better vaccines. Since MERS-CoV was on their radar, they focused on that virus. MERS has a protein very similar to the F protein of RSV. It's called the spike protein. The spike protein acts pretty similarly to the F protein. It just has this additional part. If you're thinking about the F protein as a mushroom stalk, the spike protein is kind of like a full mushroom with a cap. When attacking a human cell, the cap of the spike protein binds to a certain enzyme on the surface of the human cell. The enzyme is called the ACE2 receptor. The ACE2 receptor sort of pops off the spike protein's cap, and then the spike protein stalk does all the things the F protein does. Based on decades of literature from many researchers, it was clear that the spike protein is, is a key component of, of any vaccine, because when humans are infected with coronaviruses, they make a large antibody response to the spike protein. Because that's, it's really the, you know, that's the major protein on the surface of the, of the virus. So we know we needed to use spike protein as the vaccine. But we also know that the spike protein can change shapes and isn't so stable. So then, you know, what form do you want to use? Our previous work had shown that what you really want to immunize with is a prefusion stabilized form that, that can't change shape. So that way we train our immune system to recognize the shape of the spike protein as it exists on the surface of the virus. So with MERS coronavirus, they knew they wanted to stabilize the spike protein, the key protein on its surface. They wanted to make sure it did not elongate. The spike protein was pretty unstable. Its stalk was liable to elongate and go to post-fusion form on the drop of a dime. And they had trouble even seeing its structure. To make it easier, they switched to another virus, one that we've all gotten. HKU1, that's one of the four coronaviruses that we've probably all been infected with. It's one of the many causes of the common cold. And for whatever reason, the spike protein from HK1 was actually pretty stable. And it was amenable to the structure determination efforts. And uh, we brought in another group, Dr. Andrew Ward's group at the Scripps Research Institute. He's an expert in cryoelectron microscopy. And working together, they were able to get that first structure of a human coronavirus spike protein in the prefusion shapes. Now we had our first blueprint to start making changes and tweaks to stabilize spike proteins of coronaviruses. Using this blueprint, Jason's postdoc, Nianchang Wang, looked closely at the MERS structure. Here he is. It's actually pretty boring, but it's also interesting. Why is it boring and why is it interesting? Boring is that we just try again and again. Most of the time, it just failed. 
Yeah, it's not that easy. Nian Zhuang tested more than 100 different mutations to the spike protein until finally coming across two changes that stabilized it, that kept the spike in its pre-fusion form. And it was really stable. It stayed all in the pre-fusion shape. What was exciting is that the region where we made these changes is very similar between different coronavirus spikes. So the same changes, uh, we could also introduce them into SARS-CoV from 2002, and that led to stabilization. So by 2017, we really had this method, kind of a universal method for stabilizing beta coronavirus spikes in their pre-fusion confirmation. But there was one problem with their success stabilizing the MERS spike protein. Nobody really cared. It flew way under the radar because by then, it was evident that MERS, as dangerous as it was, didn't spread very easily. If few people were getting MERS, a vaccine for it didn't seem super important. Yeah, it's kind of painful at that time. Most coronavirus at that time was not considered a big issue because there are fewer cases, so people uh, didn't pay much attention on that kind of coronavirus. Although their work didn't get much attention, they knew they had a vaccine technology ready to be put into action. By 2017, they were prepared to test their stabilizing spike protein method on another coronavirus. They just needed an outbreak. And then, two years later... We found out in the beginning of 2020 that this new virus that was causing pneumonia outbreaks in Wuhan, China, was a coronavirus, and very similar to, to SARS-CoV-1. They'd finally have a chance to test out the spike protein in real life. But a big question remained. Would it work in people? Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. 
My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't. I came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world? Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Jason and his team spent years figuring out how to keep a spike protein stable and use that to make a new kind of vaccine. But they needed an outbreak to test it on real people infected by a coronavirus. Then all of a sudden, they have a real-time pandemic crashing down on the world. The reports were coming out of these pneumonia clusters in Wuhan. Uh, We could just see it following along on science Twitter and on the news and uh, so people were already kind of nervous, especially in the coronavirus field, that, that we could be looking at the beginnings of a coronavirus outbreak. And then it was early in, in January when it was learned that, in fact, it is a coronavirus, uh, a beta coronavirus that's similar to the, the first SARS-CoV from 2002. At this point, Jason's working at the University of Texas, and he's on vacation with his family. Barney Graham called me. Uh, he said he, he was in contact with the U.S. CDC, Chinese CDC. They were going to try and, and work quickly, work with Moderna. Moderna was then an upstart company based in Cambridge, Massachusetts, that had never brought a vaccine to market. But they tested several vaccines for other viruses. And Barney Graham had a plan to work with them on a bat-borne virus called Nipah. But when the novel coronavirus came along, Dr. Graham told Moderna they should focus on that instead. And he wanted to know if, uh, if we were interested in continuing our collaboration to determine the structure of the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein and use that information to to create the the vaccine antigens. Jason texted his graduate student, Daniel Rapp, and told him they were going to be busy the next few days. Based on this information, we were sort of ready to go. That's Daniel. Because we've been studying these spike proteins for such a long time, we knew how to effectively stabilize spike in the prefusion confirmation, and that acts as a really good vaccine candidate. And so during that time, we were kind of just like sitting on our hands, like really anxiously waiting for that information to become available to everybody because that was the thing that was holding us back from getting started. Back to Jason. And then we just kind of had to wait a couple of days because there's nothing we could really do until the genome sequence became available so we could see what the sequence of this spike protein was. On January 11th, a scientist in China made it available for all. That was Zhang Zhenjiang, who sent the sequence to Eddie Holmes in Australia, who then posted it online. Jason got the sequence and started working on a vaccine with his team the next day. So what does it actually mean to get a virus's genetic sequence? The sequence is kind of like its barcode. You're scanning the letters in its genome to figure out exactly what it is and how it works. It's essentially a file. Like somebody can just, you know, it's an attachment, a text file that somebody can send us containing the the sequence, just a bunch of letters. So like computer code, 
And then we have to figure out what changes we want to make. We very quickly, just by taking that sequence and aligning it to the other spike sequences, we knew right where to put the two changes that we had identified earlier. So that was probably done within a couple of hours, just the design of these constructs. Remember, Jason's team is looking for a way to alter the proteins on the surface of the virus so they won't go into that post-fusion confirmation. The change that Nin Shuang and the team had discovered working with MERS is called the 2P mutation. The P stands for proline, one of the 20 amino acids that are the building blocks of all living things. Prolines are special because they're the most rigid amino acid. And because they are rigid, swapping out two other amino acids for two prolines at a certain joint of the spike protein keeps the mushroom stalk in place, meaning it keeps it in pre-fusion form. But Jason and his team couldn't just do the 2P mutation on a laptop. They had to do it in real life. There are companies out there that can take a modified genetic sequence, like the one they designed at UT, and turn it into something physical. And you need to turn it into a biological substance, like actual DNA. Uh, And so that's where we need to work with the companies, where we send them the file, and they're able to synthesize DNA and send send it back to us. And then we have to stitch some of it together and do some other things. And so in the lab, we were working with the DNA. When Jason says he's working with DNA... He essentially means that they're making changes to genes in order to program human cells to produce the stable spike proteins. Remember, this is the key to the whole vaccine. Our own cells will be the factories that produce the stable spike proteins. And the DNA is the thing sending those instructions via messenger RNA. So that way the cells realize the instructions have changed, the recipe has changed, if you will. And they just make a protein containing prolines at those positions instead of the original amino acids at those positions. I think within, I don't know, within 10 days, maybe a bit more, Nianchuang had, had cloned like 10 different plasmids. Plasmids are like small snippets of DNA molecules. And Nianchuang was working around the clock to stitch them together into a full DNA strand that could encode for the spike proteins. Meanwhile, Barney Graham's lab was talking to Moderna, telling them how to stabilize the spike protein with the 2P mutations. Like what spike protein to encode in the mRNA, where to put the stabilizing proline mutations. Then came January 30th, 2020. It was an exciting day. We, Daniel was harvesting. He's talking about his grad student, Daniel Rep. The purified spike proteins that were produced by the, the cells we had growing in the lab. So he was able to, to harvest the spike, purify it, and start freezing uh, cryo-EM grids. Cryo-EM stands for cryo-electron microscopy, a method for seeing proteins at atomic resolution. First, Daniel would flash freeze the proteins in ice on a tiny mesh disk. Then, he'd use an electron microscope to take thousands of two-dimensional images of the proteins. A computer program then used those pictures to create a 3D image showing the structure of the proteins. That allowed us to start the data collection that night and we could see the individual spike proteins for the first time. And within 24 hours, we had collected a complete data set and we got the first looks at the molecular uh, shape of the coronavirus spike protein. Within about 30 days, we had it determined and a manuscript submitted. That paper has been cited close to 4,000 times now. Well, yeah, we were sharing the, the coordinates of the structure 
uh, the blueprint of the structure to people all over the world. We were shipping the plasmids that we had made to 200 groups or so, so that way they could make the spike protein in their labs for diagnostics, for antibody isolation, for additional structural studies. So it was, it was a really crazy time early last year. Now they knew exactly how to stabilize the spike protein, the mushroom shape on the surface of the coronavirus. They'd actually created stabilized spikes in the lab. And the pharmaceutical company Moderna would use these stabilized spikes as building blocks for the vaccine. They're just directly synthesizing the mRNA, uh, but, but it's still at the, you know, at the instructions level, such that when the RNA is injected into a person, that person's cells read the recipe and make a protein that contains two prolines at these positions rather than the other amino acids that the virus normally uses. RNA is the sort of middleman between DNA and the spike proteins. We'll learn more about this in the next episode, but the saying among scientists is that DNA makes RNA, makes proteins, makes life. Moderna's vaccine sort of skips the DNA step and sends the mRNA, or messenger RNA, directly into the body. Moderna encapsulates the mRNA in a fatty sphere called a lipid nanoparticle, another thing we'll talk about in an upcoming episode. That bubble helps the mRNA get to our cells without falling apart. And when it does, our cells get the recipe for making 2P mutated spike proteins. They make them, and the immune system sees these coronavirus proteins in their pre-fusion form. And the immune system learns that they are a threat. It learns that a spike protein in the folded hairpin shape is an enemy, and the body has to fight it and stop it from spreading. If you get infected with coronavirus, the body now knows what to do when it comes across the spike protein in pre-fusion form. It knows how to keep you from getting sick. They tested the vaccine in mice and saw that it produced an antibody response, and then they readied it for humans. By March 2020, Moderna had enough vaccine to be used for a phase one clinical trial. That material was, was shipped to the different sites in the U.S. where they began immunizing the first 45 people with different doses, testing you know, side effects, dose response, the level of, of antibodies being produced. Yeah, I think it's like it's like 63 days or 65 days, something after the genome sequence was made available online, the first people were being immunized, which is incredible. Um, hi, my name is Nicola Pasquarelli. I'm Nicola, in the second episode, was one of those first people. I was part of the phase one of Moderna's vaccine trial for COVID. Pfizer and Johnson & Johnson also used the 2P mutation for their COVID vaccines. It's the driving force behind all the vaccines that Americans are getting, and of some other vaccines being made around the world. The last year is difficult because there's a lot of mixed emotions because there are there are certain scientific successes um, that we would normally celebrate. But you know, the whole time, the, the economy is being devastated. People are losing their jobs, hospitalizations, deaths. So it's, it's really a range of mixed emotions where we're excited for the science and everything we've been working on for years being translated into a vaccine that was looking very promising, but at the same time also just really devastating. We spoke with Jason in March of this year. At the time, three vaccines were already approved for emergency use by the FDA. More than 30 million Americans had already been fully vaccinated, and millions more were scrambling for appointments. Me and my producer, Gabby, had gotten the Moderna shot a few days earlier. But Jason still hadn't been vaccinated. He was young and healthy, 
not a frontline worker, happy to wait his turn. He got his first shot a couple weeks later. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't. I came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The search for an RSV vaccine after that trial went bad in the 60s inspired the technology used in today's COVID vaccines. But what about RSV, that virus that still kills thousands of people every year? It's normally a virus that peaks in winter, but it's been surging in children this summer, alongside of, and maybe even because of, the surge in the coronavirus Delta variant. There's still no vaccine for RSV on the market, but they're working on it. Last year, November, October of 2020, 
prefusion F proteins have gone into phase three clinical trials. And yeah, we're really excited by that. It's taken a long time. That's sort of the, the normal vaccine development timeline, you know, starting in 2013 with the antigen just entering phase three clinical trials in 2020. But yeah, everything still looks really good and we're really excited by it. Scientific failure and scientific success are unstable concepts, about as unstable as pre-fusion spike proteins. When a trial for an RSV vaccine failed about as badly as a vaccine trial can fail, it led to a newer and better way of making vaccines 50 years later. In 2017, when they stabilized the spike protein, Jason and Ning Chuang and Daniel and everyone else they work with, all they got was crickets, but they did it anyway. Here's Daniel Rapp again. Yeah, it's, it's a little surreal because we would be doing this work whether or not COVID-19 became a pandemic. We would still be studying the spike protein, figuring out how it worked. But it, it's been a little surreal to have so much attention paid to our work because like, as I've been describing to you, we do things that most people would think of as just like minutia. Like if there wasn't a pandemic, we would still be doing this and people would wonder why. The, the best example of it is for the past like five or six years, I've been telling people I study coronaviruses. And up until like a year ago, people would say, what's a coronavirus? On the next episode of Long Shot, we'll speak with the founders of Moderna, a company that started with essentially zero employees before becoming one of the biggest names in COVID-19 vaccines. We'll also find out what role Jennifer Aniston played in that origin story. Today's episode of Longshot was produced, written, and narrated by me, Sean Revive. My co-producer is Gabby Watts. Special thanks to Noel Brown at iHeartRadio and journalists Alan Dove and Ryan Cross. Executive producers are Virginia Prescott, Brandon Barr, and L.C. Crowley. Longshot was scored by Jason Shannon. The score was mixed by Vic Stafford. Sound design and audio mix was by Harper Harris with Tune Welders. School of Humans. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed 
I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.